they've said their security is a lot better than their tech security. Did you get into any trouble at the time? Found someone in the corridor and said, I'm having a heart attack. I spent half my student loan on a huge freezer and put it in my room. Oh, you were going to do it out of your bedroom? It was only about 12 years ago that the medical community thought that it could only be, it was only a boy issue. On the podcast today, I'm joined by Alex Partridge. Alex, how are you doing? Yeah, good, thank you. Thanks for the invite. No problem. Thanks for coming in. Um, I've been a huge fan of yours, both in business, but now in terms of everything that you're doing with your podcast and raising awareness for ADHD. Um, so I think this is going to be a bit of a different podcast to a lot of the podcasts that I've talked to people about before, because it's always been about social media. It's always been about business. And I think this will have some elements of that. But I think it would be great for us to talk about ADHD. And I think I'd love to talk about how ADHD has affected your career. Um, but to begin with, I always like to go back, I guess, to the beginning, if you will, and talk about what you were like as a kid, what you were like growing up and kind of how you got into business. Uh, yeah, as a kid, I think um, if you looked at my school reports, I think you'd probably read that I was very quiet mm. um, had potential but sat at the back of the class didn't really get involved um didn't really have many friends i wasn't like um a very sociable person i'd kept myself to myself so yeah. really young i just collected warhammer and put myself in my room and painted but i was very happy like it sounds yeah. quite like lonely but i was <laughs> very very um happy yeah. doing that keeping myself to myself that's quite opposite to what you would um i guess it's opposite of the tale that maybe you'd get for most ADHD kids. Mm. So the, the, you know, the, the label that they always get is loud, disruptive, naughty. Like that's what I would have been told about my friends who had ADHD when I was a kid. So that's quite interesting to hear that you were kind of the opposite of that. Yeah. I mean, that's really why I felt compelled to do the work that I'm doing now around mm. ADHD, because when I'm, the more I looked into it and I realized that actually that is true sometimes, but that is a stereotype yeah. and it can really show up in different ways. Mm. Like for me, it's so internalized. Um, the hyperactivity is, isn't physical. Yeah. So in class, even though I was sat at the back, not acting out, not throwing stones at the windows, whatever the stereotype <laughs> is of yeah, ADHD. Yeah. Like for me, it was in my head, my racing thoughts constantly right. um, causing anxiety. I remember... Um, sat in a class and the teacher sing singled me out and said, Alex, do you know the answer to this question? And I just felt my face like going red and mm. my heart speeding up and my palms getting sweaty. And, mm. I, and I stood up and I ran out of the room and found someone in the corridor and said, I'm having a heart attack. <laughs> and I wasn't having a heart attack. I was having an anxiety attack. Yeah. Like, for me, like the hyperactivity in the ADHD has always been mm. in my head. And that's really the, if I look back, that's the first kind of like sign of it. And then we can talk right. about later on how that, how I've dealt with that anxiety as an adult. But for me, like when I realized that that penny dropped, that that the H in ADHD, that hyperactivity isn't, mm. doesn't always mean physical. No. And it can be like in your head. That was like, wow, I need to um, be one of the people who are speaking out and raising awareness about this. And, and when you were a kid, and again, we can talk about how you, you've dealt with it as, as an adult. But when you were a kid, how did you release that hyperactivity in your head? Like, where, did you have outlets that you were able to release it? Not really. Like, I didn't really have, like, many friends. I played a lot of computer games. That was probably mm. my vice at the time. 
Um, I was never into anything that got me into any trouble. Um, I just remember being very anxious, right. and and, it, and I remember a couple of times it, it boiled over into a full blown anxiety attack, and not really knowing what what what, why, what was causing it at the mm. time. And I remember when I was really young, I'm getting put on um, anti anti anxiety medication when my parents just didn't know what was going on, and they took me to my GP, and mm. we were saying about the anxiety. Um, and like so many people who don't realise that the ADHD hyperactivity can be internalized, they get misdiagnosed with mm. anxiety and put on when actually the the um, underlying reason is is ADHD. And, and at the time, was there any talk of ADHD? No, there was one person in my school who was out, like with a, who was like, I have ADHD. Yeah. And he was your typical yeah. sort of, um, and he really was like the stereotype and the, the, what a lot of people think ADHD is. Do you, do you think there was an element of, I don't know, like misunderstanding of what ADHD was even from the professionals back then because the fact that it was just never even talked about in terms of your case is quite surprising really and just to label it as anxiety and that's it do you think there was a bit of a lack of understanding oh massively you know? i mean it was only about 12 years ago that the medical community thought that it could only be it was only a boy issue yeah like women just yeah. couldn't get it yeah and now we know that women get it just as much yeah, yeah, yeah. if not more yeah than than men Mm. And it's because there's a number of theories. I think it's because women are taught that they have to act a certain way and they can't act out on mm. the the impulses and the, the hyperactivity that, that they feel like they should do because they've got that dopamine deficiency and they need to mm. release it. But because they're female and, and society says that women should be polite and well-behaved, yeah. they keep it internalised. So after... You know, it was diagnosed as anxiety. What was life like after then in school? Were you able to manage that better? Did the medication help? Like, or did it just never really rectify itself? Not really. My parents swapped me from one school to another. Right. Okay. I remember my dad chasing me around the garden because I just wouldn't get in the car <laughs> to go to school. Um, and they were just getting frustrated because yeah. they didn't realize what was going on, and yeah. nor, nor did I, no, nor did anyone. I was just so terrified of going to school. I just associated mm. that building with what happened that day with that anxiety attack and mm. just the fear of just going back to it. So my parents swapped me from one school to another, and then nothing changed. Mm. Um, and then I went to college. More, it was just constant, really. The anxiety. Yeah. There was no one. The anxiety medication didn't work mm. because that was addressing that wasn't addressing like the root problem that wasn't slowing down mm. that mind and then you went off to university right yeah and what about there like you know for most kids going into university just going to university causes most people anxiety it's mm. a brand new set of friends it's you know some people absolutely thrive some people goes completely the opposite way what was it like when you went into the university environment so it, it took me a while to go to university because I just associated anything that had like a, a classroom setting mm. with that anxiety attack. So I had two gap years and nothing really was happening. Right. I was working in hotels. So eventually I thought yeah. that I would just apply to go to university. Um, and I remember I went to my first lecture and it was like a replica of that panic attack that I had mm. when I was at school. Yeah. I sat at the back of the lecture theatre at Oxford Brooks and... The um, 
And again, I just felt that heart racing going and my face going red and my palms mm. getting sweaty. And I left the, the, the lecture theater and I never went back. Um, but for, I never told my parents. I never told anyone. I was yeah. just in my room. And that's when I started my first business. Business was the only thing that ever like took that anxiety away. Weirdly. Well, that's what's quite interesting. And I wanted to get onto that. Had you, before you'd got to university, had you ever kind of, and I always find this quite interesting with anybody who's entrepreneurial is when they first started showing signs of having that kind of entrepreneurial itch mm. or like the tendencies for it. And you've heard all the stories in the world about entrepreneurs that from the age of four was going into school and selling sweets. Were you that kid or was it until well, not until you got to university that you, you realized you had this itch of entrepreneurship that you needed to kind of, yeah, itch? Um, yeah, so... I didn't think it was at the time, but looking back, I think you would describe it as entrepreneurialism. Mm. When I was six, five or six, I was going through all the board games in my parents' house and finding the addresses of the manufacturers of these board games. And I spent like two weeks designing my own board game, doing all the branding, making all the pieces. Oh, wow. That is very, very entrepreneurial. But yeah, I mean, yeah. that's what I did. When yeah. my friends were out playing football, I was in the house creating yeah. a board game and sending it off to all these companies and I didn't hear anything yeah. for a couple of weeks. And one of them replied back and he probably could tell that I was five or six because of my handwriting. <laughs> and he said like, we're not looking for any new designs at the moment, but yeah. always... And I remember so clearly the letter said, like, always lean into this entrepreneurial mm. spirit. And I didn't know what that word was at the time. Um, oh, wow. So, yeah, like, it was clearly unusual behavior at the time. But looking back, I think you definitely describe it as entrepreneurial. And then when you're at university, was it, it was at university that you started Unilad? Yeah. Right? And how did that come about? Like, tell us the story of, and I know you've told it a million times, but tell us the story of, how the idea came about, how it first came into practice. Yeah, so um, I was in my second, there was a business in my first year, um, mm. but like I lost interest in that. And in my second year, I started dating um, this, this other student called Eleanor, and she was this editor of an online student magazine. Right. Um, and yeah, to cut a long sort of romantic story short, <laughs> we, we broke up and I was... That was the first time I had experienced heartbreak, mm. genuine heartbreak. And I remember yeah. just sat in my room, just absolutely devastated, like desperate to try and win her back. And I just thought that if I started something similar to her, that she would think we had yeah, something yeah. in common and, yeah. and it would start up again. So that was how Unilad came no about. Way. That's amazing. What, just out of interest, just quickly, what was the business that you started prior to Unilad in the first year? So it was a late night pizza delivery company i spent half my student loan on a huge freezer and put it in my room oh you're gonna with, do it out of your bedroom yeah yeah filled it with tesco pizzas and, and made a facebook page it was called quick pizza and i put my phone number on the profile picture on facebook and really simple idea it's like if you're when the shops are shut after a club text me i'll put pizza in the oven i had four people cycling around oxford delivering these pizzas um I mean, it was going really well. This was before Deliveroo. I was going to um, say, it's like the initial Deliveroo. Yeah, but then I think now looking at it through the ADHD lens, it was mm. one of those ideas that I got like so excited about. And I mm. was, I went all in. Within 24 hours, I'd spent three, 400 quid on this huge freezer and filled it with pizzas. But then a week later, I'd lost interest in it. And, <laughs> right. I, and, it, and it just didn't carry on. So that, looking back, I would say is, is, you know, through the lens of ADHD, is that boom and bust cycle of, 
of um, starting something, going all in and then losing interest that, a week later. That is something that I really, really want to touch on because I, I think that that's such a powerful message for anybody with ADHD who is in business right now. Um, I've certainly gone through that boom and bust cycle in my own businesses and the ways in which I even do things in my current business. Mm. It's like I get obsessed with something for a few days and then it's just it's just out the window. It's mm. like, no, 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 get back to what you're supposed to be doing. But just quickly, because I know a lot of people will be interested. So you, you launch this love affair of a business, mm. <laughs> effectively. And when does it start to take off? Um, well, there's an interesting story. I mean, I, I, I made the Facebook page, I set up the website, and then I had a friend who was a computer science student, and yeah. I was getting a bit frustrated because I, I wanted to get the numbers up quickly so I could impress yeah. Eleanor. And um, I said to my friend, I said, is there, a, is there a way we can hack into the university database to get all of these email addresses to market out yeah. um, Unilad? And he said, yes, I can... I can I know how to do it. I'm not going to do it because it can get you into a lot <laughs> yeah. of trouble. But yeah. no, he taught me how to do it. And within within an afternoon, I had thousands of student email addresses that I was then mailing out um, all of the Unilad content. And the funny thing is the Oxford Brooks have invited me back uh, twice to speak. And they've, they've <laughs> said their security is a lot better than <laughs> their tech security. Did you get into any trouble at the time of doing that? No, I did it for like a week, and I, I don't think they knew until I had told that story oh, right, publicly okay. years later. So by that time, they were like, they were quite proud of me, and I was yeah. an alumni and all this kind of stuff. So I, didn't, <laughs> I thought it was quite funny, but yeah, I mean, it was a pretty serious security breach at the time. That's amazing. And what was it like once once the the like UniLad and later on Lad Bible started to take off? And I guess this is a good kind of segue into talking about business through the ADHD lens mm. what was it like going from just yourself running these pages to starting to bring on staff starting to bring on other people that you needed to rely upon to run a business like looking back now how did that affect you personally because from what you've kind of and I've heard you talk about before you get hyper focused on things you can focus on things for hours on end not everybody can do that how did you find it in terms of building a team around you to begin with yeah, I so I had to get a well first off, as soon as I got that an email from yeah. I think it was Domino's Pizza that said like I'll give you X amount to be featured on the page, I very mm. like impulsively dropped out of university and, and that was oh, really? the sort okay. of validation I needed. And I just yeah. that same day I had gone, right, okay, I'm leaving Oxford and I and I went back home. Right. Um and that that's when I started to build out a team. Right. Uh, I had to had to get a um you know, a web designer for starters, yeah. a team of writers. Yeah. Um, so suddenly the, it went from just me to around eight people, oh, wow. um, which was obviously now it's like, and I've got nothing to do with it anymore, but it, a couple of years after that, it was like four or 500. So, but from one person to eight people, suddenly mm. I had this management role as well. Yeah. Um, and it got, I remember feeling quite, it was distracting, I found for the hyper-focus. Like I found it mm. quite overwhelming. At first, I managed to organize it in a way that I we had a Facebook group mm. called like Unilad Writers. So right. it was quite organized and that took away that initial overwhelm. Okay. Um, but yeah, it was definitely overwhelming. And I, and I also, the sort of side of me that likes to be in control and mm. to have complete oversight, which I did, but suddenly having all of these writers and all of mm. and, and a web designer, it wasn't just me anymore. Yeah. 
which was, I think with anything, it, it, you know, when something goes from just you in a bedroom to, to seven or eight people that mm. adds anxiety, that adds stress. But I think that initial Facebook group, like just, and that taught me a, a real, a really more broad lesson. Like mm. you have to, if you, if you are the type of person that gets overwhelmed, like find an organizational tool or some way to mm. keep it manageable in your yeah. head. I found massively that the hardest step for me in business went from just being myself to being a team of three or four mm. was a way harder step than it has been from like three to now a team of 20-ish, 20, 20 people. That that step from three to 20 was way easier than one to three or four because that one to three and four was so hard to organize because you were having to give away, as you just said, certain levels of control while still having oversight, while not micromanaging, while wanting to keep standards where you need them to be. And I can imagine through the ADHD lens, as you say, that that can be quite challenging. Um, in terms of in terms of when the the business started to grow, and looking back now, you've mentioned, and we were talking about it before the podcast, that when you first found out that you had a when you were diagnosed with ADHD, you saw and you came out and you, you championed it being a superpower. Mm. Whereas now you've kind of pulled back on that and you've said that it's very much, there, there are good elements and bad elements of having ADHD. Talking about business and your, your career and looking back at it now, what were the main strengths for you throughout that period of running Unilad and Lab Bible that came from the ADHD? Yeah, I mean, like, as you mentioned, the hyper-focus mm. um, was, was absolutely paramount. Yeah. I remember from day one, that hyper-focus of just not leaving my room for weeks on end. Um, now, my housemates in Oxford will, will tell you at the time, they were genuinely concerned about my welfare because I just didn't leave my room yeah. <laughs> for, for weeks and weeks other than to eat and drink. Mm. Um, it was just that complete obsession and that like ability to zone out everything that was going on around me and everyone was going out drinking being students and i was just absolutely obsessed mm. with it i within a week i'd learned how to make a website on weebly um everything that you needed to do the branding the the, the theme everything like that would probably take months and months and months and a strategy and, and it, it, about 48 hours i was just locked in and I 100% associate that mm. to, to with ADHD hyperfocus, and I'm experiencing it now with the podcast. Yeah, I had yeah. the idea, and and within again, like it was five months ago, I had this idea to do the podcast, and within a day, I had the, the logo, the strategy for how it was going to grow. Mm. I, I knew what type of content I was going to make, and you know, here we are, five months later, and four hundred thousand followers late and it's just blown up and it's i can see that the same is taking the same path that unilad did and yeah. i 100 percent attribute that to that hyper focus mm. and that, that ability to see patterns yeah and to look at past trends and and mm. see what's going to resonate mm. on social media it was facebook back in 2010 and, and now it's on other platforms but it's, mm. it's that same part of my brain that's like can look at and can the passion recognition mm. combined with the hyperfocus. But the, the why I wouldn't call it a superpower is that I've, I've got to be very careful because when I'm 
in that hyper focus and obsession, like my brain is firing. I'm like, yeah. I'm loving life. That's like where from an outsider, I would probably look quite lonely. I'm in my office just <laughs> out my, on my computer. Yeah, like, yeah. There's a cost to that, right? Like friendships. Yeah. Don't have any um, yeah. <laughs> relationships. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a struggle. Friend, um, family, don't speak mm. to them for long periods of time. And I have to like, so there's a cost to that. Um, and also when I step away from that hyper-focus and mm. suddenly I'm not getting that dopamine from social media, there's a void in my head. And I found out the really hard way that if you don't have that self-awareness, you look for it in unhealthy ways. Mm. And I've been hospitalized three times through binge drinking. And that was always when I stepped away from the, mm. the dopamine loop that like Facebook or now Instagram or TikTok what gives me. Because that's something that, I, if you're okay to talk about it, I'd love to talk about in that listening back to your story and your podcast, those outlets that you, you've talked about, that dopamine chasing that resulted in the drinking. Did that, did that spike as the business grew and the stresses grew? Um, it was okay at the beginning. Because mm. um, with Unilad especially, there was a... A court case. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's really, I think I learned during that court case that mm. a major trigger of mine is is confrontation. Right. Okay. And so that was super interesting. I didn't know that before. And suddenly when you're fighting in the courts for your company back, and actually mm. that's really like probably the biggest confrontation I'll ever experience in my life. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and I remember when my solicitor, solicitor called me up and said, these, you know, this isn't going to be, this isn't going to reach a settlement. This isn't, you're going to have to go to court mm. and just my mind raced forward and I could almost see myself on that witness box getting cross-examined and having to answer back to their mm. barristers and I remember that day I just got in my car and drove to the petrol station and got two bottles of wine and just I've never drank so quickly I've never seen myself drink like that as well before that day mm. so now I'm very careful as well about what I expose myself to and I think I think there's a massive element with ADHD looking at it through that lens as well is this whole sensitivity to rejection and criticism. Yeah. And for me, I look back and actually that was like a major trigger. Mm. So it was a confrontation, but actually I looked at it as a personal criticism. Like why would they kick me out of the company? That's very interesting. What you say there about being sensitive to rejection and criticism and mm. all those kind of things. That That's really interesting to me because one of the things we talked about before the podcast is that one of the major reasons why I want to talk to you and um other people with ADHD is because for years people have said I've got ADHD and I'm like what you, whatever you just think I'm hyperactive or I get super focused or mm. I can be quite rude and abrasive sometimes but one of the things that has also triggered this is that and it might not come across on from an external point of view but I hate the thought of rejection and criticism and it's something that completely drives me in mm. everything that I do and I think that's something that's probably not talked about that much with ADHD. Um, so how did that affect you throughout your career? Like, were you, was it, was it a case of you were always conscious of people trying to please people in business or people yeah, around you? I think so, subconsciously. And I think that's yeah. probably, a, um, I think it's generally it's an insecurity that motivates yeah. Yeah. what society would define a successful person. I don't think it's someone chasing the good stuff, I think it's probably mm. them running away from the fear of the bad stuff. Mm. For me, it's like that if something doesn't go right or mm. I, I am, think someone's perceiving me as unsuccessful or 
criticizing me because I haven't done as well as I could do. And I don't mm. know where that comes from, but, um, you know, I can, that's such an uncomfortable feeling. Mm. I almost have like a phobia of that, yeah. of that feeling and that rage that I know can bubble up sometimes if someone criticizes me mm. or and it doesn't even need to be a real rejection or a real criticism. It could be the slightest thing that I perceive yeah. to be a criticism. Yeah. And suddenly that's like the next two hours, I am just, I've lost the rationale. And I'm almost like, and you see it, it's rejection sensitive dysphoria. It's very common amongst the ADHD community. Right. Um, you just see red and you <laughs> lose like the ability to, now I'm aware of it. When that mm. happens, I step back, I try not to react. And mm. I always calm down and I look back and I'm like, good job you like i'm so thankful that i didn't say anything in that moment because in mm. the past with relationships and and other things i've i've said i've reacted in that moment mm. i always regret like the stuff i say in those moments did you because obviously like like we've discussed you've only recently been diagnosed with adhd so maybe you know five six years ago you didn't have that self-awareness do you do you kind of wish now you had that self-awareness back then when you were kind of running the company because I can imagine that having that back then would have given you even more of an advantage over over the ADHD. Yeah, I think so. You have to be so, but I'm so careful what I expose myself to now. Yeah. And when things, obviously as part of human life, right, you get criticized sometimes and you have mm. to deal with that. Um, and now I'm aware that how I react to it and how common that is with ADHD. Mm. Looking back, I think, they won't really like, I have to be, you have to go through the negative reactions to recognize mm. that you are part of that community. Yeah. Because if I didn't react in a certain way at the time, I wouldn't recognize rejection sensitive dysphoria in myself. Right. What about, um, and it's very, it's very similar to rejection. What about comparison? Did you ever find yourself comparing yourself to other people, maybe peers or competitors a lot when you were coming, you know, when you were, you know, even now, do you find yourself comparing yourself to other people? Yeah. Yeah. Massively, massively. And I only ever, it's really unhealthy. I only ever compare up. Yeah. Well, maybe that's human nature. You know? I, probably. Yeah. I'm always looking at, I'm not comparing myself with, I'm comparing myself with the people who are like number, you know, the, the, who are, ahead of me yeah um and actually i should be comparing i should be looking and say look how far i've come yeah but i'm always looking up and saying oh they're they're ahead mm. um and that, that is a motivator mm. but then you can never win that race no because there's always going to be someone who is further ahead in whatever field that you're in um but i've heard a lot of entrepreneurs talk about that mm. um but yeah you know i should learn to, to compare down more and be grateful and be self-appreciative mm. of how far I've come rather yeah. than always not thinking that I'm I'm always below someone else it's hard isn't it because if, if you got rid of that want to compare yourself up mm. how else do you you've got to find other ways then to create that motivation to keep going to keep driving forward to keep getting you know now get your podcast better because mm. I'm sure you compare it to other podcasts yeah. and what they're doing but when you're running a business you're comparing it to people that are doing it better than you mm. but as you're saying on self-reflection people would look at you and go, look what you made. And I want to do what Alex has done. And it is quite difficult to sometimes sit back and just reflect on that. And that's where the self-awareness probably comes in. Um, so obviously 
you mentioned the drinking and, and that's obviously was a huge negative in terms of ADHD, but specifically in terms of business, what were some of the things that you think ADHD caused a negative reaction in terms of when you were, you know, running your companies? Probably just stuff to do with executive function, I think. Right. And like simple things like perhaps being bad at timekeeping or being bad at using a calendar, mm. being bad at, just general organizational skills, all stuff that now I know is, is you know, classic ADHD behavior, yeah. not having that executive function that you need to be organized. Mm. And at the time, I didn't know that I lacked that or I needed help in that situation. So yeah. I didn't have the awareness to ask for help. It's, it's, it's just really interesting because I think that, as you mentioned, the label of ADHD, not everybody's the same. Mm there will be some people with ADHD who are probably good at timekeeping or, mm. or good at using a calendar. They might not be able to get hyper-focused and, it, and it's, it's, you know, it's on a spectrum, if mm. you will. But I think it's a really powerful message for anybody who's listening or anybody who's got kids who, who've got ADHD who are listening and they're thinking, oh, I want to start a business or I want to be successful, but I've got ADHD and I'm just getting told that I'm a naughty kid or I, you know, I can't pass my exams or whatever it may be. To hear from the likes of you, and to really, you know, start listening to, and I think one of the best things that you're doing right now is your new podcast, ADHD, well, not new anymore, but, you know, newish mm. podcast, ADHD Chatter, um, because I've been listening to it and hearing from this range of people that have got ADHD and the amazing careers that they're having, but also listening to how different they are. Mm. There's there is, hasn't been one guest I think so far that I've listened to and I've gone, you're exactly the same as the other person and their description of ADHD and the effects on their life has, has been completely different. Mm. What, what's it been like for you reflecting on being, a, being able to talk to so many people with, with just different experiences of it? It's been an eye opener to, to echo what you said and to really show how it shows up differently mm. You know, there's a famous saying, you meet one person with ADHD, you've just met one person with ADHD <laughs> because that's why I always yeah. start the episode with the same question. And mm. I say, you know, how essentially how does ADHD show up in yourself? What's your earliest memory of displaying ADHD traits? Yeah. And sure, there's some crossovers, but generally each answer is very unique. Mm. Um, but people with ADHD are 400 times more, 400% more likely to start their own business. Like we're attracted to the entrepreneurial mm. lifestyle and speaking for myself and echoing what my guests have said, it's that like impulsivity yeah. the, and that fearlessness and that inability to dwell on failure mm. because I started, you know, the going back to when I messaged the board game companies and that mm. business I started at Oxford Brooks and there were like seven in between them, right? But they all failed, but I wasn't able to dwell on them. I think some, some people move might start, on very quickly from yeah, them. Yeah. Yeah. So in, that is that is so interesting, and that's what we we're talking about. This boom and bust cycle of that you can just you can get focused on something if it doesn't work, great, on to the next thing. Mm. Do you also think it's you mentioned then about, and I didn't know that that you're four hundred percent more likely to start a business if you've got ADHD. Is there an element of that because maybe somebody with ADHD can't fit into the the you know the square holes of somebody that needs to fit within a big organization? You know, having a quote unquote proper job mm. there's elements of that you know they might if they can't time keep correctly or they can't keep to a calendar or whatever it may be do you think there's elements of that to it 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, the entrepreneurial the entrepreneurial lifestyle mm. lends itself to no day is going to be the same. There'll be similarities, mm. but you couldn't get further from a mundane nine-to-five office job. It's why we see a lot of people with ADHD subconsciously going into the emergency services mm. or really fast-paced jobs where one day is not going to be the same as the other. Right. And you see, like, you know, that's why I'm doing a lot of work now to raise awareness of how businesses can can better accommodate neurodivergence and specifically ADHD because mm. putting an ADHD person, from my experience, into an office um, where they just have to do the same mundane task mm. like every day, nine till five, the yeah. outcomes are, are, are really bad. People leave the jobs. They they um, get really anxious. They get really depressed because mm. their mind just isn't wired to, to, to function well over a long period of time, perhaps for a couple of months until that kind of honeymoon period fades. Yeah. And then you see like, retention rate of, of ADHD staff pretty pretty low in, in what you would consider to be a normal nine to five job. And what what are some of the things I guess then businesses can do to to make their office space or just the roles that people are working in more accommodating for people with ADHD? Because as you said and as we've talked about, no, you know, two people are the same. Mm. So you can't just do blanket changes across organizations. But what are some of the things that may help in those situations i think you've got to really broadcast to your staff that you're open to mm. listening first and to make it a yeah. safe place for people with neurodiversity because so many people just don't feel safe enough to disclose their diagnosis and you mm. know we can get into the legal side of it you have a it is a disability they have a legal obligation to to put reasonable adjustments in place if yeah. once once an employee has, has um disclosed Bring in a neurodivergent speaker. You know that's a big signal that that mm. you're 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 um you're a safe place. You know, have a adjustments policy. Let people work from home. That's the big one, and mm. that just that simple swap up of environment can be enough. Mm. Let people come in later, maybe an hour later, so they don't get overwhelmed by the rush hour traffic. Mm. Little things like that, because there's a lot of sensory overload in the community. Normalize the use of fidget spinners. Fidget, uh, fidget toys and and standing desks. You know, for me mm. and a lot of people in the community, sat at a a, um, a table in front of a computer screen mm. can be paralyzing. Um, but a simple thing like if you're allowed to to stand, and that kind of culture mm. is just normalized. And if someone brings in noise cancelling headphones and stands whilst they're working, like that's not a big deal. And that kind of culture is normalized. It's. I think it just, it comes down to education, doesn't it? Because you just talking then, I'm thinking about our office where our company is and it is just a big square room mm. and everybody sits at the same desks and they sit there all day and we're in, we all, we're only in Mondays and Wednesdays but everybody's encouraged to be in Mondays and Wednesdays for the whole time to work together but there's a lack of education behind this for most for most companies that I wouldn't even think that something as you know simple as a standing desk or you know, changing up your work environment, whether it be work from home or being able to book a meeting room and just focus for a few hours. Um, I, I, that obviously doesn't come across a lot of people's minds who haven't thought about this before. Um, so how do you think that businesses kind of better educate themselves on this? Obviously, they can listen to your podcast, which is great. Bring in what, what else? Bring in trainers. Yeah, but there's a lot like we mentioned Matt Gutwell, who was yeah. the first guest on my podcast. That's what he does, and you know, there's many people like him. Matt yeah. Gutwell is very good. Yeah. Um, he, his job is to go in and educate business owners yeah. and managers, 
A, how to recognize mm. neurodiversity, yeah. the benefits of having a neurodivergent workforce and mm. what things you can put in place to enable them to feel that they're in a safe space where they can where they can work to the best of their ability. Yeah. Like that's gotta be the first thing you do is bring in a trainer. A lot of people know, they've heard the word neurodiversity, but they haven't got a clue where to start. No. Um, like it's not expensive, bring in a trainer and just have an afternoon, have a workshop, let someone come in, do an audit on your business mm. and say, you only need to make a few little changes. It's not expensive mm. to, to make it more accommodating. Yeah. Kind of taking it, it's a bit of a segue, but taking it back to December when you got your diagnosis, why did you go for a diagnosis? Like what, what, what had happened for you to go, I need to go see if I've got ADHD? So I suspected it for a couple of years. Right. I mean, I started seeing a little bit of content on mm. social media and I reflected back to my previous like businesses, going back to that boom and bust cycle, boom and bust cycle. Mm. And then the catalyst was I started a podcast called Walk Away Wiser mm. and I got so excited about it. I literally turned my main bedroom into my in my flat into yeah, this, this podcast yeah, studio. Yeah, listen to one of your podcast episodes where you're talking about that you bought everything that you yeah. could buy for a podcast. Yeah, I spent a small fortune on <laughs> literally all of the equipment you see here. Yeah. I, I turned my bedroom into this, basically. Yeah. A proper set. And the postman turned up delivering it all, and I didn't want to do it anymore. And the guy I had hired to be the director said, like, when did you get your ADHD diagnosis? Because he had ADHD and he recognized this behavior. Oh, really? And I just looked at him as in uh, with confusion because I, I didn't have a diagnosis. Um, yeah. And he said, well, this is, you know, amongst other things, clear ADHD behavior. You, you've literally invested 15, 20,000 quid in turning your bedroom into a studio a week ago. And now you don't want to do it. Like that's that. So that was the most expensive boom and bust cycle and that was really yeah. what led me down the rabbit hole of going into google and, and um looking at various resources and, mm. and seeking an assessment and the psychiatrist um said it was clear as hell mm. my my adhd and so it's taken about two years to get that diagnosis because that's something that I've, i was talking to somebody about today a friend that has um adhd and they were talking about how long it takes to actually go through that process mm. So did it take, so how long, it took the whole two years to get a diagnosis? No, no. So I, like many people, mm. I'm, I I went private. Right. Okay. So mine took about six weeks. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Um, which a lot of people, I mean, I'm, I was, I could afford it. Mm. A lot of people are going private mm. because they're, when they, when they want a diagnosis so they can get medication, they're in a, such a critical stage. Mm. So they'll often pay to go private. They'll they'll take out a loan or they'll sell their car oh so they can, because the NHS at the moment is yep. two years if you're lucky, seven years if you're unlucky. Seven years? In some areas of the UK, yeah. So I was talking to um, Jay Beach, who's on our roster, and I know who's on your podcast, mm. um, and he was talking about how long it took him to mm. get his diagnosis because he, he moved house and he was changing boroughs and it just took mm. a lifetime to get diagnosed. What are, and again, I'm not going to say typical because there, nothing's typical in life, let alone in, in neurodivergence, but what are some typical traits of somebody that might have ADHD if, you know, a parent's listening and they're, you know, you know looking at their kids and thinking, oh, I might see if I, you know, take them to see if they could get diagnosed. What are some typical traits of ADHD? 
I mean, the main ones are impulsivity. Mm. I think those and impulsivity is for me and just broadly like the main one. Mm. Um, concentration, not being able to finish tasks, mm. getting s- super excited about something and and abandoning it. They're probably the main ones. Um, and it's that there's lots of comorbidities, and that's, I don't really like that word, but mm. that's things that come with it. So that, that anxiety, that depression, that low yeah. self-esteem, because you, you don't, it alleviates when you get an understanding. You don't mm. need a diagnosis to get that elite. I've always say like getting a diagnosis is for the privileged. Yeah. Um, because you either pay 900 quid to get one quite quickly mm. or you have to wait a long time there is a, there is there is something called right to choose which is definitely worth speaking to your gp about mm. um where the nhs pay for the, the, the private fee right if you're eligible this that's worth like going down that rabbit hole if, okay. if you are considering a diagnosis mm. um but yeah is that impulsivity fidgeting um concentration all things that are considered normal requirements to mm. to function so it's so interesting though isn't it because on the one hand you're talking about you can be hyper focused and get tasks done so well but then on the other hand you're talking about not being able to get tasks done as a as another symptom mm. so it's just a minefield to try and get it to try and figure out what is a symptom and what's not a symptom or or the fact that you say that they just change so frequently yeah, I mean, there's some, and that's another thing that why so many people feel misunderstood because there's these glaring contradictions yeah. in how it can present. If if you get triggered, for example, with rejection sensitive dysphoria, like your your traits can be completely different that day. If you're mm-hmm. having a good day and you've discovered something, you're hyper focused on it, then you'll be more productive than anyone. Mm. And you could get more done in those two days than than anyone. You, and, and I think in that situation, that's when, you know, it, it can get considered to be a superpower. Mm. But okay, maybe the next day you've been triggered by something or mm. something negative has happened, and suddenly you just you can't get out of bed for two days. So it's that mm. inconsistent part of it that it makes it quite hard to live with. Mm. So that's um, I'm conscious of not trying to like talk about myself on this because I I'm very much want to talk to you about your diagnosis and your journey but me thinking about the potential of going for an ADHD diagnosis a lot of the stuff you're saying is triggering a lot of stuff for me about the way in which I do things the way in which I talk to people um and that kind of up and down depending on the situation you're in the up and down and the focus depending on your interest level in a project did you find yourself, the moment that you, what usually happens with me is, and I just want to see if this is similar. If I'm interested in something, you can't stop me. I'm on it all day, every day. It, my wife tries to pull me away from stuff. She can't. I'm on my laptop. I'm on my laptop in bed. She's trying to make me shut it, wherever it may be. But the moment something is not interesting to me, I just I, I physically can't focus on mm. it. It's not that I'm being rude, and sometimes it comes, and it's the same with conversations. If I'm super interested in the conversation, I want to be in it forever. But then, if I at the moment I'm not interested in the conversation, or like I've thought about the next task I have to complete, I'm out of that conversation in my head, and I'm on to my like. Sometimes I'm on my phone and I'm still talking to somebody. And is that similar to the kind of situation that 
kind of you go through or you've you've been through? Yeah, hundred percent. And I think it would be quite easy for someone listening to say, well, everyone just does that. Of course, if you're mm. not interested in something, you're not going to enjoy doing it anymore. But I think if you look at a neurotypical person who's going through that cycle, mm. their interest and disinterest might sort of be a little wave. But mm. with someone with ADHD, that interest is like a massive spike, massive spike yeah. and then a huge dip to the point where you're literally incapable of doing anything. Yeah, I sort of like compare it to if I go out for dinner like to a restaurant and the food turns up and I'm getting like this huge dopamine rush from the food. Mm. And as soon as I'm finished, I want to leave yeah. instantly. I get frustrated like when the waiter doesn't bring the bill over straight away to the point where I'm like, I can't engage with that conversation with who I'm with. Mm. Like, as soon as that excitement is gone, like, I want to get out of the restaurant, pay the bill. That's why I love Nando's because you pay before yeah. you eat. So <laughs> yeah. you can just go as soon as the food's done. So it's, I've literally just got back from holiday where we were going out for dinner and, and it's the same. I'm exactly the same, but it, it's it's more than that. It's it's If I'm in certain situations where, great example, you're getting ready to go out with family and friends and you're going to leave at six and everybody else is ready and there's a few people still getting ready. Mm. I know that it's just like a, a thing that all families go through, but I'm like, why are we not ready? Like why? Like I need to be, I need to have left. Mm. It's six. I need to have gone. It, it, that is something for me that I've, I just think it's just my personality. That's just the way I am. But that's some of the things listening to your podcast and hearing about other people talk about it. It seems to be, one of the reasons why I want to try and get a diagnosis because mm. um, the other thing that, and I know we're going off tangent a little bit, but I think this might be helpful for people. Another video that you put out, and I, I think you put it on your LinkedIn, was all about eye contact, mm. which genuinely was the first time I'd ever heard anybody talk about it in this way that explained exactly what my brain goes through mm. when I'm having eye contact. Because for me... I am way better at focusing on what you're saying if I'm not looking you in the eye. Mm. But that's not what we're taught as kids or growing up. You, you know, you need to look people in the eye and you need to be respectful. But the moment I look at someone in the eye, my brain turns off. And I'm better at, I'm better at listening to somebody by looking mm. at them in the eye. But the moment I start talking and I really want to focus on what I'm saying, I almost have to look away. Because I start to, because my, the rest of my brain's going, am I staring at you too much? Am mm. I staring at this eye? Am I staring at this eye? And you put out a video talking about that. And that really hit home to me. Have you, have you always had that growing up? Yeah, always. And it's only recently that I've discovered how common that is within the neurodivergent community, whether that's ADHD or autism. Eye contact is deeply uncomfortable yeah. and distracting. <laughs> um, like you said, I can listen to you. But yeah. If I'm talking if I'm looking at you in the eyes, then yeah. I, I suddenly lose my articulation and, I, and I'll probably carry on speaking, but I'm aware <laughs> that what I'm saying is actually not as articulate as I could be. Yeah. So then I just get like self-conscious, but yeah, it's always been there. Definitely. Um, very common. Like eye contact is deeply uncomfortable for mm. a lot of people and it can be, it can paralyze the mind. Mm. Um, I mean, we're getting into the conversation of masking, you know, we, mm. we, we're taught that, eye contact is polite and we're taught yeah. that when you go into a job interview you should you know firm handshake and make good eye contact yeah. because that was what society deems as appropriate and and good manners but for a lot of people you're not going to get the best out of them if they're trying to no. maintain eye contact no. because that's just them doing what they've been taught they should be doing when 
well, okay, but if their brain isn't working as optimally as if they were allowed to just look mm. over there when they're speaking, but then society says that's weird. Mm. So yeah, we're getting into the conversation of masking, which is, you know, a complex one. And um, the more I do the podcast and the more I understand about mm. ADHD and neurodiversity, I think the more I realize like, I do mask yeah. massively. Well, what do you do that even you're doing maybe now that you're that you mask? I mirror people. Like I, if I meet someone for the first time, I will. Because I'm such a big people pleaser, I'll even yeah. like replicate their voice or their their tone of voice or their posture. Yeah. Because I'm like, I don't know what it is. Like a subconscious desire to 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 be liked and to and to be, <laughs> yeah. You know, to not annoy anyone. Um. I am very aware that if there's more than one, if I'm interacting with more than just one person, I can almost go like nonverbal. Um, mm. I just get so anxious. I can't, if there's too many people speaking, I can't think at all. So mm. I'll just sit there at a dinner table and I won't say anything for like five minutes. And then because mm. I haven't said anything for five minutes, that will make it worse. Because then I'll be getting anxious mm. thinking they think I'm weird because I haven't said anything for, for five minutes. Like one-to-one, -one, I'm really good, I think. Yeah. Um, up till a certain period, when my attention goes, like you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Like, it's not me being rude. It's just like, okay, that's enough for now. Yeah, yeah. You know, half an hour, an hour, whatever. And then it's like, okay, well, well, that's enough for today. I need to recharge my batteries, my social batteries now, and then yeah. we can, you know, carry this on. Um. But yeah, masking is, you know, it's essentially like just changing who you are, not being your your, your true self to, mm. to to fit in. And definitely do, you know, me in my flat, you know, with with Tanya, my my girlfriend, mm. is is a very different Alex to, mm. to what I am out and about. But yeah. there's an element of like, you know, everyone's like that in in a, in a sense. You sort of yeah. conform to society's expectations. I guess everybody, way. everybody, whether you you've got ADHD or or, or otherwise, everybody masks mm. in some way, shape, or form. I think it's just again listening to your podcast, and it is a very complex issue. It's a question of should people with ADHD be masking? to appease you know the wider population mm. no and i think that it's it's a it's a really important conversation because as you say um like the the conversation piece in terms of once you've because I, I find this a lot i feel like if you're with your friends and you're just like i'm just done with this conversation that that's kind of okay like mm. you can kind of get away with that but in business and in you know everyday la life it's harder to be that honest with people and that's where you start masking. You have to be polite to people because mm. if not, you come across as an arsehole and yeah. you know, you don't want to come across as an arsehole, especially when you're in, you know, in a business situation. And I find myself quite a lot, um, again, and kind of what you were saying there, once you've, I, I tend to keep meetings very short, um, to, to kind of, hone in on the important aspects of that meeting because i know that 20 minutes in or 15 minutes in my brain will wander on to mm. the next task and i think that sometimes it's quite it's quite funny when my i started the agency with my wife so my wife still worked in the business and when we're in meetings together she can just like have loads of like you know pre-conversations and post-conversations are complete completely away from the topic at hand mm -hmm. and my brain is going get on to the conversation like but i'm having to sit there like <laughs> just smiling and and i and i 
I've always just assumed it's just because I am irritable and I'm impatient and that's it. But it's quite interesting to hear that that seems like it's similar to how your brain works. Yeah, I just don't, I I just think I've got a really low tolerance to boredom. Yeah. And can you relax well? Like can you go home and 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 switch off? Um is it no. <laughs> no, is it yeah. no. and it frustrates Tanya my girlfriend that we can't just sit and watch a film in the evening and and because even though yeah. i'm on the sofa with her sometimes and my arms around her and we're watching harry potter or whatever it is my, my mind is in the office and it's thinking about the next guest or the next yeah post or whatever it is that's yeah. going on in my professional life mm-hmm. um so yeah it's when i get that thing that really ignites my brain and at the moment it's it's the ADHD chatter podcast before it was mm. social media broadly and uni lad and lad Bible. That's I almost get addicted mm. to that supply of dopamine. Mm. And I've spoken to professionals about this and that's why I think that I've turned to alcohol and really had an issue there when right. I had to, that tap turned off. To, what to switch your brain off or to chase dopamine? To, so like alcohol will give me the dopamine right. that the social media was giving me. Mm. So for example, when I had uni lad, taken from me yeah. and my solicitor said okay you're not going to get this back mm. we need to fight for it in the courts that's yeah. when that's t- what turned me into a, an alcoholic in, yeah. that, in that period of time because that was what yeah. I was getting my dopamine from posting content mm. those likes came in my brain mm. was firing up and it got stolen from me overnight mm. suddenly my brain was like okay where am I going to get it from now I jumped in my car and and I see that now you know and I'm, I'm I can feel that kind of addiction and that that compulsion towards work with the podcast and all of the ADHD work I'm doing mm. doing now. It's a good segue into talking about the podcast because um, it's obviously going incredibly well. Like you just said earlier, 400,000 plus followers now across all platforms. Um, it's doing incredibly well. And, you know, from myself listening to it, I think it's adding so much value. And I think that Listen, there's loads of podcasts out there these days. Everybody's doing podcasts. We're doing podcasts now. Um, But I think that what's great about this is how niche it is Mm. and how much value those niche types of podcasts, you know, add to people. So it'd be great to hear a little bit about what your plans are for the podcast. Obviously, you've you've taken a big step today and done your first face-to-face interview. You've got your new studio. So what are some of the plans for the upcoming, you know, series, if you will? Just to... I mean, I wanted to go into a studio. I've always wanted to have a studio. Yeah. And I was so terrified of it being another boom or bust cycle. That's why I didn't (laughs) go straight into a studio. Yeah. I did 25 episodes from my flat. Yeah. In my boxes sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Just, you know, just completely. But, you know, my head was in it. And it was, and 25 episodes later, um, the motivation is still there. Yeah. As strong as it was at the beginning. So, yeah, I've leveled up into a studio. Mm. And it's just to really keep delivering value to speak to as many people as possible like mm. a, a huge diversity of guests loads of people different careers different mm. levels in their careers sportsmen celebrities unknown people with amazing stories yeah. doctors mm. academics all sorts but to bring relatability value insights into i think it's, it's there's twofold it's making people feel heard and seen mm. it's, it's allowing people to listen to the podcast and going oh i'm not the only one yeah. that struggles in that situation mm. i think that's massively beneficial that might be more beneficial than 
than um, than hearing a doctor say or an academic say you can do this or that to make it better. I think actually mm. a lot of the shame and the depression and because there are a lot of comorbidities with ADHD often just comes from the the, the low self esteem mm. the being unable to function as you think a human being should gives mm. and hearing other people say that they deal with that as well can mm. be really alleviating and have been successful mm. and how different each of the as I was saying earlier they're all so different every guest you've had of course there's similarities of course there's patterns of impulsivity or you know hyper focus but there's just as many people that have been on your podcast that talk about not being able to put focus so I think that that as you say that normalization of neurodivergence and taking away that stigma is so valuable for people um, and you must be getting so many people trying to contact you to talk about themselves and you know their diagnosis or their journey yeah massively I mean yeah my DMs on Instagram and TikTok are full it's overwhelming um mm. you know I, I love to, to lie in bed some nights and just reply to as many as possible and and, and the, the appreciation when i do do that mm. is you can see it um but it's just validation of how much like this content is needed mm. every message has a similar tone it's like thank you so much for making me feel seen thank you so much for for letting me know what i can do to alleviate mm. some of the, the the downsides of adhd thank you mm. for highlighting the positives because there are many the whole point of the podcast is to just create more of a balanced narrative because there's mm. such a negative narr narrative still around ADHD or mm. problem child. You're going to be a liability at work. You're mm. you're this and that. And actually, like if you if you manage it well, and there are a lot of strengths to lean into. And if you mm. if you're if you have that awareness, like I've seen a lot of my guests do, then you can really use it to to achieve amazing things. That that is something that I think actually is a really key pattern, at least from what the episodes that I've listened to, is a lot of your guests have that awareness of this the the not just the the strengths of their ADHD, but their weaknesses and what they need to do when those weaknesses flare up, if you will. Whether it's like taking a day off or like going away from social media or whatever it may be. Mm. And I think that what you're doing is creating that awareness of all those different traits and situations, not just raising awareness of ADHD. It's, a, it's teaching people how to almost, I guess, take the good bits from ADHD, but also deal with the bad bits of ADHD. Um, did you have, did you have any idea that it would do so well when you um, first started? Like, did you think the audience would be there? Because when people go this niche in terms of a subject, a podcast, and I know neurodivergence has, has grown, obviously, over the past, you know, five or six years. But did you have any idea that you would have this, this strong an impact and this big of a community at this stage? No, I mean, I, I thought that I would get to where I am. I thought it might take two years. Yeah. Um, it's taken five months to get to six months when I get to like half a million. Mm. Um, I think it's just, I always start off my videos by like addressing a point, like a really specific mm. point. And then I really like deliver a solution and I make sure that I just bring on guests that, that do the same. Mm. My first video that I just said, if you Google ADHD, it just says struggle with focus, struggle with concentration, struggle mm. with all of the negatives. And I said, well, actually, yeah, okay, some of that is true, but it also means 
that you can hyper-focus and you have mm. amazing intuition and you've got incredible pattern recognition and you're resilient and great in a crisis and all these kind of things. And that really blew up. I got like 7 million views. And it was a straight off the bat. And that's really what kickstarted it. And mm. all of the comments were just like, finally, someone's addressing the positives mm. about it because there are lots. That, that, just sorry to interrupt, but that, what you just said there about being great in a crisis, there's no way that that is on the Google definition of ADHD. There's just no way that mm. they're putting that there. But, you know, the people that I know who've got ADHD, I would say they are great in a crisis. They can adapt. They can, and they kind of, how do I put this? They almost revel in it. They, 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 that's when they get that dopamine hit, maybe. Is that something that that you found as to be one of your strengths in business? You were really good when a crisis hit. Yeah, massively. I think it's, you know, when I always, like I always, I'd like go back to the pandemic, for example, yeah. just away from business for a second. Mm. I think that was when I was noticeably calm and I put out some content about this now. And like when the, when a lot of people were panicking and, and, and I, we were just able to, remain so calm and there's this theory that people with ADHD are uh, if you go back to when human beings lived in tribes yeah like yeah. we were the ones from an evolutionary point of view who mm. were the hunter gatherers we were the ones that mm. went out hunting and and would tend to the fire throughout the night and mm. be on lookout for predators mm. but now you obviously fast forward to, to mm. modern day and those skills aren't required anymore mm. so of course we're going to struggle sometimes if that's what sets us. But when there's a genuine crisis mm. that flares up that part of our brain and, mm. and we're able to remain really, really calm and, and navigate navigate a path to the solution. So interesting. I can't have somebody that's made a huge social media company on the podcast talking about ADHD without asking what you think the impact of social media has been on people with ADHD. Because there's, I've, I've read articles about how social media is causing ADHD in kids. I've read articles that have said that it's making it worse. I've had other people say it's, it's a load of bollocks. So where do you stand on social media's impact on ADHD? I don't think that social media causes ADHD. I think that I think, in my opinion, I think the scientific consensus is that you're born with ADHD. Like, it's yeah. a hereditary condition. Yeah. It's yeah. genetic. Um, I don't think anything causes it. I think certain lifestyle factors can can um, am amplify the traits. Yeah. You know, a lot of people during the pandemic and now during the cost of living crisis mm. are showing ADHD traits because of a reaction to stress. Mm. Um, but that doesn't mean they have ADHD. ADHD has to be with you from... And it's, you know, the, the, the criteria, the diagnostic criteria is it has to have caused you significant problems in your life. And, you know, you could argue mm. that, and maybe, okay, why can't it have caused you considerable strengths? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think there's a lot of content around ADHD. I think a lot of it is good. I think a lot of it is really bad. Mm. I think a lot of influencers in the space, content creators are getting a bit carried away and, and chasing likes by kind of just sillifying and just making some, you know, ridiculous content, like mm. crossing a road and getting hit. I literally saw one where someone got hit by a car and they were like, oh, my ADHD. And it got <laughs> like millions of views. And this is what young people are watching and thinking and, and seeing yeah. that. 
without a doubt, ADHD content on social media is why we're seeing such an influx of, of people seeking assessment because yeah. it's good and bad. They're recognizing it and, and, and realizing that that might be the reason why they struggle or excel in certain situations. So that, that's what mm. sort of opened up the... But I think there is a responsibility of content creators to to be balanced and to yeah. and to be more scientific and and um, yeah, without without um, naming. So you know, I think there are some content creators who are just getting a bit carried away and, and being quite irresponsible with mm. content creation. Do you think that with this? I mean, listen, like without social media, you, your podcast couldn't exist, so you couldn't create the awareness that you're creating. Another other you know creators who are making valuable content about ADHD without social media they couldn't share that awareness so it obviously is a good thing in that sense do you think that there's a I don't want to say like a I don't want to say like a fear but do you think there is a with so many people now going oh I might have a I'm doing it now I'm going I might have ADHD because of the awareness that people are showing could there be a, I don't know, a, a worry that people might get misdiagnosed? Like too many people might get now misdiagnosed with ADHD if they do go private and they pay the 900 quid and they, they get that, yep, got ADHD, when really they might not have ADHD. Mm. Like, Do you think the diagnosis process is, is strong enough to stop that from happening? Because when I go on, it sounds stupid, but when I go on all the... ADHD websites about doing an online assessment and obviously they're all very clear this is not an assessment mm. they're more they're almost pushing you towards one mindset of ADHD it's always the disorganized impulsive it's never the hyper focus it's never the good in a crisis mm. answers they kind of are like want like wanting you to say I'm disorganized impulsive all of the like typical things that we've got told of an ADHD person so do you think that the diagnosis process is robust enough to make sure that there isn't misdiagnosis on mass if so many people are getting tested I think with anything that is subjective yeah it's not like if you've got diabetes you can go for a blood test and that's very objective you either do or you don't have it right yeah. and you can, yeah. it's a very black and white binary yeah. diagnosis with, with ADHD and a lot of neurodivergent conditions are very subjective mm -hmm. so essentially it's you speak to a psychiatrist and they form an opinion mm. based on balance mm. about what you say. So mm. with anything that's diagnosed like that, there's always going to be room for misdiagnosis and errors. Mm. I think the vast majority of people who go for an assessment aren't going because they want to get a cool, trendy label. They're mm. going because they, they know that they have mm. ADHD. They know that they need a diagnosis to get support whether that's medication or, or mm. other support and they're at a genuine point of crisis so i think mm. for that reason i think that misdiagnosis is probably not very common i think that with anything where there's a huge demand which is social media content creation on mm. this topic has caused there's always going to be profiteering mm. and private clinics that are perhaps not being as thorough as as, as they should be um my assessment was four lengthy questionnaires that were that really delved into my early years and, and throughout my life because you have to show that it's been a consistent yeah i mean at the moment it's a consistent problem throughout your life um and then 
that was done by my parents mm. and my my long term partner. And then you have a two hour interview with a with a qualified psychologist, mm. and they form they come to an, an, a, a judgment at the end of of that. And I think yeah, there so it's subjective. So you, there will always be room for misdiagnosis, and it is essentially down to the opinion of a of a professional. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, if only there was you know, a more objective test for it. It's very difficult. As as we've talked about today, the the nuances between one person to another is mm. is is vast. So um I usually end each podcast by asking somebody what their biggest lesson in life or biggest lesson in business has been. But I'd like to ask you if you were talking to somebody, let's call them a teenager now they've got ambitions of going into business, um, but they've got ADHD and they've been told, you'll never do that. You'll never succeed because, you know, one teacher's told them they're naughty or whatever it may be. What would be your message to somebody that's that's got ADHD, that's want, wanting to go into business in terms of how they can harness it to make sure that they are successful and they can go for it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably, you know, don't listen to the teacher. I think there's a lot of narratives going to young people to say that they're they're broken and this kind of stuff. If mm. they're acting in a certain way, then they need to they need to be fixed. And I think that's very damaging. I think kids should be encouraged to lean into the characteristics that they're showing, mm. especially if they're showing positive ones that mm. are creative or entrepreneurial. Like they should be encouraged to mm. to lean into those. Um, I think trust your intuition. I think mm. people with ADHD seem to have incredible intuition, like great judges of character, mm. um, great trend spotters. Like generally, if you're acting out on a, on an impulse, where you think that's mm. like a business idea, it's probably a good a good idea. Yeah, yeah it's probably like you know we have that yeah. intuition. Um, do a lot of soul searching, a lot of journaling, a lot of like meditation, a lot of um, exercises to build your self awareness. I like mm. understand where your strengths are, understand where you perhaps need to ask mm. for help. Because, you know, none of us are good at everything. I think it's quite tempting when you have ADHD to try and do everything mm. on your own. Mm. And from my experience and speaking to others, that's when you have issues with sustainability and, and mm. things crash down a bit. Yeah. When you try and do everything and burnout happens and you end up abandoning stuff because just the overwhelm gets too much. But actually, if you just keep a really straightforward journal and simple things like just a practical bit of advice like this has really helped me in the last couple of years i always plan my day the night before mm. like, because my mind is alive and at its best late at night mm. and it's the worst in the morning i know yeah. that's like but again going back to that sort of like the 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 um the the um the exaggerated peaks and troughs mm. like i am pretty much useless for the first two hours of the day but if i can if i can use my brain from the last from the previous night mm. and sit down and really plan out my day then i'm giving myself a head start in the morning mm. like simple things like that and that's what i've learned from like years of self-awareness so yeah understand what your where your strengths are and, and and don't be afraid to ask for help amazing alec thank you so much for coming on it's been very eye-opening to me i hope it has for other people um if people want to come and find your podcast, where can they find it? Oh, anywhere. Um, ADHD Chatter searched on any podcast app or YouTube. Perfect. Alex, thanks so much. Thank you very much.